2: Hello and welcome to New Books in the Indian Ocean World, a podcast series on the New Books Network. This podcast is for people who want to sail the waters of the expansive Indian Ocean and learn about its past and present. Thank you for joining me today. I'm really excited to share this interview with you. I'm your host, Kelvin Ng from Yale University. A World at Sea, Maritime Practices and Global History, published by the University of Pennsylvania Press in 2020, is a volume co-edited by Professors Lauren Benton and Nathan Paul Rosenthal. The past 25 years have brought a dramatic expansion of scholarship in maritime history, including new research on piracy, long-distance trade, and seafaring cultures. Yet maritime history still inhabits an isolated corner of world history, according to editors Lauren Benton and Nathan Paul Rosenthal. Benton and Paul Rosenthal urge historians to place a relationship between maritime and terrestrial processes at the center of the field and to analyze the links between global maritime practices and major transformations in world history. Drawing on the important contributions of several scholars, historians, and specialists of oceanic history, A World at Sea consists of nine original essays that sharpen and expand our understanding of practices and processes across the land-sea divide and the way they influence global change. The first section highlights the regulatory order of the seas as shaped by strategies of land-based polities and their agents and by conflicts at sea. The second section studies documentary practices that aggregated and conveyed information about voyages and encounters and it traces the wide-ranging impact of the explosion of new information about the maritime world. Probing the political symbolism of the land-sea divide as a threshold of power, the last section features essays that examine the relationship between littoral geographies and social legal practices spanning land and sea. Maritime history, the, contrib- the contributors show, matters because the oceans were key sites of experimentation, innovation, innovation and disruption that reflected and sparked wide-ranging global change. Over the course of our conversation, we will talk not just about the historiographical impetus behind the volume, but also the novel methodological contributions of this project. What some of the decisions were that went behind the focus and structure of this volume. I will also ask what can area studies, legal history, economic history, and global history gain from oceanic histories. To learn about these issues and more, join us and stay tuned. I hope you enjoy the book, and I hope you enjoy the conversation as well. Today, I'm here to talk to Professors Lauren Benton and Nathan Paul Rosenthal, the editors of the wonderful volume, A World at Sea, Maritime Practices and Global History. By discussing this book, we will dive deep to learn about the multiple global, transnational and oceanic turns in maritime history all of which powerfully contributed to the remaking of the modern world. Lauren Benton is the Barton M. Biggs Professor of History and Professor of Law at Yale University. A comparative and world historian, Benton writes about the legal history of European empires and the history of international law. Benton is the author of four books, including three on the history of empires and law, Rich for Order, The British Empire and the Origins of International Law, 1800-1850, co-authored with Lisa Ford, A Search for Sovereignty, Law and Geography in European Empires, 1400-1900, and Law and Colonial Cultures, Legal Regimes in World History, 1400-1900. In 2019, the Toynbee Foundation awarded Benton the Toynbee the Prize for significant contributions to global history. She is a recent recipient of a Guggenheim Foundation Fellowship and currently serves as President of of the American Society for Legal History. A graduate of Harvard University, Benton earned her PhD in Anthropology and History from Johns Hopkins University. Before coming to Yale, Benton was a Nelson O. Tyron Jr. Professor of History and Professor of Law at Vanderbilt University. Her previous appointment was at Julius Silver Professor of History at NYU. Nathan Paul Rosenthal is a historian of the 18th and 19th century Atlantic War, He focuses on the political and cultural history of Europe and the Americas in the age of revolution, with particular attention to the transnational influences that shape modern national politics. He received his PhD in history from Columbia University with a dissertation on revolutionary organizing and published a first book on a different topic in 2015, Citizen Soldiers Becoming American in the Age of Revolution. That book, which argues that American sailors of the revolutionary era had an unknown and significant role in the formation of modern notions of nationality, won the Society of French Historical Studies' Gilbert Chenard Prize. His second book, book project, titled The Age of Revolution A Cultural History, aims to reimagine the Age of Revolution as both an analytic category and a historical phenomenon by thinking about the individual revolutionary moments as united by shared cultural practices rather than common political structures or ideology. Welcome Lauren and Nathan to new books in the Indian Ocean World. And thank you so much for taking the time to talk about your rich volume today. So can you start us off by saying a few words about yourself? That is how you became interested in the field of oceanic studies respectively and how this edited volume came to be.
1: Laura, you want to go first?
0: very much and thanks for the generous introduction and also for the opportunity to talk about the book. Um, I've been interested for some time in uh, maritime history. I suppose I got especially interested in it uh, through writing about um, empire and law and imperial legal politics and that uh, drew my attention to what I saw as a a bit of a misplaced emphasis that was developing in maritime history on um, 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 that led to a a sort of romanticization of mariners in, um, in, in the politics of the Atlantic world in particular, but even in other regions. And I wanted to write about the way mariners were aware of law and legal strategies and the way that, uh, ideas about law and practices about law on the seas were contributing to regulatory orders that were oceanic and even pan-oceanic. So that was my entry point, And that was reflected in a chapter that's included in the search for sovereignty and a couple of, of articles about uh, the legal history of piracy. And, um, and, and from there, of course, I remained interested in maritime history because A lot of my writing focuses on uh, the history of international law and also the history of global legal orders. And um, this sea and stories about the regulatory order of the seas are very central to both those projects.
2: Thank you so much, Lauren. And what about you, Nathan?
0: Yeah, so I
1: came to an interest in maritime history uh, really coming out of uh, looking at the, the politics of the Atlantic world in the revolutionary era. And, and mariners have actually for a long time had a kind of important role in that story. Uh, there's, a, there's a classic, uh, famous to early American historians uh, study of um, mariners and the coming of the American Revolution by Jesse Lemish, a uh, really sort of generative article from 1968. Um, and, and I sort of started by looking, uh, becoming interested in mariners as a as a group that's involved in in politics, and and I think a little like L'Oreal, though from a from a different direction. As I got more deeply into it, I realized that the maritime world had all of these characteristics that made it really valuable for thinking about all kinds of different big questions in the history of the Age of Revolution and the early modern politics. It's a space of fluidity and motion, um, which a lot of people are interested in right now. How do people move around? What's the movement of ideas and practices? At the same time, though, it's a space that is, to a degree that I think it's hard for us to understand now, uh, in the early modern world, is of intense interest to states. Uh, They're intensely interested in not only who's sailing, um, but what's moving around, um, but also uh, making sure that they control uh, maritime sea lanes, um, borders. Um, So there's an interesting way in which... um, the maritime world sort of sits at the confluence between notions of fluidity, flexibility, maybe um, uh, uh, you know the chameleon-like quality sometimes of ordinary people in this period, and the kind of formation of the state. And so I think a lot of as i've as I've you know come to to think about it, I've become interested in the ways in which the legal history of the maritime world, um, like Laurie, sort of stands at the intersection of the development of the state as an an efficacious um, body, either in resistance, with resistance from or with cooperation of ordinary people. Um, It's also a space of cultural um, uh, transmission. Uh, and at the same time, of course, it's the, the sort of certain lifeblood of this Atlantic circuit, the economic circuit. So a lot of, uh, sort of elements come together in the maritime world. And that's why I found it to be a kind of persistent fascination. Um, even as I've maybe moved away from some of the initial questions that got me, that got me interested.
2: Thank you so much, Bill, for that. And for listeners who might not be as acquainted with, uh, the foundations of this oceanic history, would you mind just giving us a sense of the historiographical and methodological foundations of the oceanic turn? How has this intersected with or drawn on the, list, the recent literature in global and transnational history?
0: Um, why don't I start out, and then I'm sure that Nathan will want to chime in. Uh, one of the things I should say that, that uh, we tried to do in the introduction to the book is to make it very useful to people who would like um, to sort of have in one place an introduction to the historiography on uh, on oceanic and maritime history and its relation to world history, and so that that's we, we try to do that in the intro, and I think that that introduction will be helpful to a lot of students. Um, as well as researchers who are starting to frame their own projects. And we talk about the ways that uh, there, was a, you know, these, there were these traditional thrusts within maritime history, a, fo- a focus on navies and also a focus on, on uh, long distance uh, or, or regional maritime trade. Um, and then we describe a couple of more recent uh, strands within the literature that have tried to move um, beyond those thrusts. Uh, one, um, to, to, which is, of course, well known uh, among historians uh, to focus on ocean regionalism from the work of, uh, of Brodell on. And this continues to be an important strand within maritime history and another strand of, of social history of the social world of mariners um, and their experiences and, uh, of labor on the seas. And uh, what we suggest is that uh, as these these, um, movements within the literature or the the findings within them create the foundations to move maritime history very securely into global history and to integrate it uh, um, and sharpen that connection, but haven't yet done so. And that there are limitations of the existing perspectives on the connection between maritime history and global history. So that's that's the sort of general orientation. It's very much in relation to the existing literature. Nathan, I'm sure you'd like to add to that.
1: Yeah, well, no, I, I mean, I completely agree with with, with everything you've said, Laurie. Uh, I think that the, the only thing that I would add is that I think the oceanic turn, just to, to sort of say a little bit about the oceanic, the original oceanic turn, original oceanic turns, you know those were efforts in in a number of ways, and Brodell is obviously the, the sort of poster child for that. But there are a number of other uh, oceanic turns in in places like the Indian Ocean, um, and to to an extent even the Pacific. Um, and one could even talk about things like Caribbean uh, uh, sort of oceanic approach. You know those approaches all when they were um, sort of first attempted, and those range from let's say the 1940s on. Um, you know, those were all attempts to kind of look beyond the frame of the nation state, um, to look beyond the frame of regions, um, and 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 in that way, they were extraordinarily generative, right? An attempt to kind of move the level of analysis up from the the, the nation state, um, and to insist on uh, oceanic connections around oceans and seas, and that in some cases, right, connections across oceans and seas between nations or between. Religiously or uh, ethnically or demographically defined regions were, in fact, just as important as the ostensibly um, uh, right solid demographic or or national border. Um, and I think, in, in that sense, the work that we're trying to do in this in this volume is very much continuous with that that the oceanic turn in the sense that we're saying that frame, the oceanic frame or the the the, the frame of the sea of the individual sea, a regional. Uh, or sort of regional focus, um, sometimes you also need to move beyond that level, right? You need to move into a higher level of global global analysis. Um, And there's been quite a bit of that, right? Trying to think about global um, histories, global biographies. um, And I think what's distinctive about about our our project in this this volume is that we're trying to think about the, the maritime world, particularly in that respect, and the kind of maritime... Uh, the features of the maritime world in a kind of global perspective. And that, that hasn't really been done um, all that much. Um, so that just to sort of clarify where where I think that the, we're connected to the oceanic term.
2: Mm. That's really beautifully put, I think, because as, as someone working on the Indian Ocean myself, and as historians of the Atlantic world, whose works have been really instrumental in this sort of rethinking of oceanic history, I was wondering if you could just talk a bit more about what area studies fields, um, discrete area studies fields like U.S. history or European history or Caribbean history, Latin American history, let's say, what they might be able to gain from from a more in-depth and sustained uh, engagement of maritime history. How might an oceanic perspective offers the vantage point to rethink, for example, certain key legal or economic categories?
0: Well, here I would emphasize uh, one um, additional Uh, element of the perspective of the volume. The the subtitle of the volume is uh, Maritime Practices in Global History. And the approach here is to suggest, just in the way that Nathan has been describing, that uh, one can ask uh, interesting questions by beginning um, analysis with maritime practices rather than starting from an assumption that one knows what the appropriate scope of a particular problem is. So rather than saying, you know, there's an Indian Ocean problematic, a series of Atlantic problems, one can start with uh, investigating maritime practices. And then sometimes that investigation will generate um, unusual geographies, um, unusual spaces of analysis. Um, processes, illuminate processes that might be particularly salient in some ocean basins, but that will e- either extend to or also uh, exist in synchronic form in multiple ocean regions. And uh, so I, I just did want to mem- m- mention this kind of focus on maritime practices. Uh, it, it's not, it, it's not, um, uh, a biblical dogma in the book, but I would describe it as a as a kind of perspective that informs uh, a number of the of the of the wonderful chapters. Right,
1: and if I can just you know take a, a second to add to that, I think one one of the claims that we try to make, certainly in the introduction, this was something we tried to um, talk about in the in the conference from which this volume came. And I just I should just put a parenthesis and say thank you to the. USC Huntington Early Modern Studies Institute, which um, which funded the conference from which this um, this volume came, uh, which was called Global Maritime History. Um, one of the one of the things that I think both of us tried to to advance at that at that in that conversation was the idea that the maritime world, because of the nature of maritime labor and life, um, has some similarities um, on a global scale. Right. One of the ways in which the maritime world can provide a usefully global lens. Um, is that all of the people who are trying to be mariners, I mean, to put it in the most sort of ridiculous sense, they've got to survive on the water, right? They need a boat. They need to know how to operate boats in the water. They need to have um, food. Um, All of these things are distinctive qualities, distinctive features of life at sea and life around the sea. Um, And it doesn't matter where you are, right? Human beings can't survive in the water without lots of help. Um, and so there's a lot of sort of practical similarities, which aren't actually the product of connection exactly. They're the product of dealing with a similar kind of situation in multiple locations, in many different locations where the land meets the sea and people are there. Um, and I think part of, the, part of what we try to, to, to argue, as, as Laurie just said so um, eloquently, is that if we start from, well, what are these maritime practices – What do they look like? Not just in the place that you're interested in, but everywhere um, or in multiple locations. You know, how does that change the questions that we ask? So something as simple as, um, you know, what is the nature? And just to pick up on um, uh, 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 Lisa um, uh, Norling, Lisa Norling, thank you. Um, Lisa Norling's uh, great chapter about um, women's labor. Mm. You know. One of the questions that she's asking is, what does women's labor and the edge of the water look like around the world? And in a sense, by by asking that question, she immediately de-exceptionalizes any claim that you might want to make about women's labor in any ocean, um, oceanic context. Because what she shows pretty convincingly, I think, is that there's a global pattern Um Of the ways in which women's labor and men's labor is divided at the edge of the sea, it's not quite what you'd expect. I don't want to give it away. Read the book, Um, but uh, you know, just beginning from that kind of that practice allows you to um, look immediately um, at the at the kind of the configuration of women's labor. I think in a different way, and one could talk about similar things in many of these uh, in many of the, the approaches of the different chapters.
2: I think that that's exactly so beautifully put, because what we're dealing with here is not a matter of connected histories and that sort of the recent turn to connected histories, but more rather looking at looking at broad structural convergences that emerge from these interface of land and sea maritime practices across different regions. And in doing so, it's a sort of de-exception, uh, it's a sort of like Challenging the, exception, the exceptionalism that's usually ascribed to certain spatial locales by, by looking at broader sort of like comparative tendencies that emerged during, during this early modern period. So actually, let's turn now to the book and its chapters. The book tackles many themes and proceeds from the early modern to the age of high imperialism in 11 highly readable chapters, including the introduction and the afterward. Can you share with us how you decided to organize the book chronologically or thematically, um, and what was some of the thought process that went behind um, selecting the chapters that went into the book eventually?
1: Well, Lori's a genius at organizing books, so I think she should answer this question. <laughs> I concur, Yeah, yeah. Uh,
0: well, collective effort. Um, but w- the uh, we we wanted to come up with some. Well, we came up with three headings that I think themselves offer some indications of what we regard as, you know, pretty exciting ways of approaching uh, maritime history and global history together. Uh, the, the one heading uh, currents um, groups some chapters that uh, probe uh Processes that extend along the land across the Land Sea divide and that um, begin to shape regulatory orders or institutional uh, ways of, of, of uh, controlling the seas. Uh, the second is called dispatches and looks at ways of um, circulating but also originating. Information about the seas, knowledge about the seas, and uh, it, the, I, I, all of those take those chapters in that section take different but very and very original um, cuts at that. Uh, and then in the in the third section, which we call threat call thresholds, we group um, articles or chapters that are looking. Um, In in part, they're looking at the the threshold between land and sea. Many of them are examining liminal spaces, um, coastlines, um, and uh, the control of coastlines or the movement across short um, bodies of, uh, small bodies of water um, that are close to, close to land, Um, but also they're looking at thresholds of power and the way that problems of control of these kinds of spaces then uh, uh, also reverberate in the politics of state making, uh, of sovereignty making, and um, inter-imperial arrangements of power. So um, that's we came to this really because we had these great chapters and some uh, from the conference and then some additional contributions um, that we were lucky to get. And uh, and we could see that these are three areas in which the field itself is moving. So the volume uh, is reflecting this this uh, the, this movement rather than necessarily, uh, or than, than originating it. But I the, these are I think especially good illustrations of those tendencies.
1: I have to I have to add that one of the things that I think is particularly rich about these papers um, is about the, the the chapters is that they. Um, they actually connect in multiple ways. Um, and so we have this, I think, um, ultimately uh, sort of persuasive and, and, and very valuable organization. But it is also, there are also other um, regional um, and temporal and even um, source based um, kinds of organizations that were possible. You could have had sections that were focused more on law. And um, funny story, when we were actually figuring out the organization of the chapters, I, Lori and I were sitting in a cafe and, um, and, uh, and I said, you know, maybe we should just have a, a choose your own adventure book where you have, you know, all the chapters, and we sort of propose three possible organizations, and we could have three different tables of contents, um, because to me, (laughs) there seem to be so many different ways of sort of putting it together. And uh, Laurie, and this is why it's so wonderful to collaborate with, with someone who's more experienced than oneself, just looked at me and said, Nathan, that's not going to work. And then we came to this, this organization. I think what I
0: remember saying, Nathan, was you've been reading too many children's books lately. (laughs)
1: <laughs> You're absolutely right, which is also true.
0: <laughs> which you'd be doing as a parent, I should add, rather than on your own.
2: <laughs> but I, I think what really ties all these diverse chapters together, despite their disparate um, focuses and um, locales, is that the introduction provides a sense of the historiographical stakes involved and the broad sort of intervention that this volume is posing as as a whole. And I thought that the introduction did that really well, just purely in terms of how it's attempting to situate this current literature on maritime practices in relation to sort of earlier practices of writing oceanic or maritime history. Um, And here you write that the present field of oceanic history is born of earlier maritime and naval histories in the 19th and early 20th centuries, and subsequent studies of seaborne trade and commercial ventures. Um, And then you have new social histories of the sea that open up new questions around labor, subjectivity, and social life. Can you briefly elaborate on the different stakes of these various strands within maritime history? And in what ways do their differing approaches to studying maritime history reflect divergent assumptions, archives, or let's say political intellectual concerns?
1: Well, I think it'd be I think it'd be hard to understate the differences among these um, these strands and in fact to a significant degree those strands of maritime history um, have developed almost in opposition um, to, to one another um, the the social history of Mariners was very much uh, developed very much as a reaction to um, or a sort of um, uh, uh, almost um, counterweight to a scholarship on maritime trade and maritime empire that sort of assumed the existence of sailors and assumed the labor of sailors without bothering to spend very much time finding out um, about them uh, or their, or their lives. Um, And I think more recently um, some of the work on mariners that's looked at things like race um, at uh, gender You know, that work in turn developed against a maritime history that um, was really about male mariners um, and not about um, all of the many um, male white mariners, mostly. And not about the the sort of uh, the communities often quite diverse um, that existed around them and the diversity within the maritime community, um, because it varies quite a lot from from place to place, depending on what region you're looking at. so, so that, that literature, I think, has been, uh, you know, has developed in, in, in quite a rich way, um, but also, and just to, to come back to sort of the, 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 the claim of the book, you know, it's developed in a quite regional fashion. Um, so it's quite, quite remarkable, actually, when you look, um, as I did in, in working on that part of the, of the introduction uh, at the maritime histories of, let's say, France, England, uh, North America and the Caribbean, you know, you have almost coordinate, you know, roughly simultaneous within a decade of one another sort of movement in each of these directions that I've just sketched out, um, but with very little reference from one field, one geographic field to the other. So, you know, we have social histories of French mariners, we have social histories of American mariners, we have social histories of Dutch mariners, um, social histories of English mariners. And um, by and large, those historiographies don't cite one another. Um, there are some exceptions to that. Uh, the Dutch and French literatures, for instance, are a little closer than some of the others. But it's really quite remarkable the degree to which a population that is defined in the early modern period by its mobility is studied um, still um, by maritime historians as a series of national populations. Um, I think that's in the process of changing, um, but it's 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 really it's quite striking still. Um,
0: um I, and I, I think also it would be this would be a good time to mention the uh, another of the, the the themes that we think we see as cutting across these chapters, and that's that that really kind of led to the conversation about we could have multiple ways of organizing them. Um, and and a, a, across all of the historiographic trends that Nathan has described, what we see is also not among everybody, but in general, a, a, a persistent tendency to continue to represent the, the, the sea as a sort of special place, a place apart, a place that uh, changes more slowly or that even is politically inert. Um, and, in, and, and, uh, and that is, uh, at times, creates situations in which the lives of mariners are disconnected from um, from lives at sea. And against that, you know, there has been this really very rich historiographic strand of of uh, that looks at uh, lives and processes that extend across the land sea divide. And that was something that we wanted to. Um, to make very salient in this book, and it features in many of the of the chapters. Uh, we call it out also in the afterword, where we recommend uh, uh, asking questions, asking new research questions about what we call uh, land sea regimes. And uh, just to give an example, the opening chapter by Carla, Carla Ron Phillips looks at the, the ways that in the Spanish Empire, multiple processes and um, policies were involved in creating incentives for re- and recruiting uh, people to go to sea uh, and that of course this didn't stop at the at the at the edge of the water this uh, the disciplinary regime and the uh, recruitment regime continued uh, in into um, onto ships and so one really has to regard this as a kind of land sea regime of labor coercion uh, which she illustrates very effectively and so that emphasis is something that 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 we see cutting across this uh, latest and very rich turn in maritime histories.
2: Mm. That's really beautifully put, I think, because it also shows up the question about thinking the relationship between broad structural tendencies and contingent specificities in, in maritime histories when when we're talking about these maritime processes. Um, I, I suppose put differently, considering the sort of heterogeneity and unevenness that characterizes the world's many oceans, the Atlantic, the Pacific, the Indian Ocean, to see nothing of the many seas that they extend into, how might we engage with the specificity of particular locales and sites while remaining attentive to the analytic utility of the oceanic or the maritime as a category? So in other words, um, perhaps you could just give us a bit more um, of your thoughts on o- ocean regionalism as an analytically useful endeavor, perhaps.
1: Well, if I could just jump in on on that, I, I think one one way in which I hope the framing of this book will be useful to um, to our fellow scholars is that it tries to set up a different way of thinking about um, the universal and the particular. Um, I don't love that phrasing, but let's say the um, uh, right the, the the sort of the common uh, uh, shared practices and, um, and local variation. Um, I think typically we've thought about, um, the levels as being, if you're in a sort of oceanic ocean regional frame, you know, I think that the typical way of, of framing it has been, well, we've got different regions different sort of zones around the ocean and the ocean itself provides a kind of common denominator and and as in much historical work part of what makes for a dynamic historical scene and historical account is having some kind of tension between um, uh, a shared frame or a common process and local variations or local um, uh, or regional difference Um, and I think part of the claim that that Um, we're trying to make here, um, which I think is borne out by uh, by many of the the essays, is that you can also think about the common frame as being maritime practices, right? That maritime practices have this kind of similarity everywhere around the world, um, wherever the land meets the sea. Um, uh, And, you know, there are variations from place to place, but there are some really fundamental similarities. Um, I guess, to just to pick up on, on the, the, the Carla Ron Phillips uh, essay, right? the idea of coercion, maritime labor almost everywhere is somewhat coerced in the sense that Marita, that, that Carla Ron Phillips means that she sees um, economic strain as a form of coercion. It's rarely the case that the people who are richest in a society are going to see. It's dangerous. Um, it means being far from home, right? So in that sense, you have this kind of common Theme all around the globe, Um, and and you can see the ocean uh, regionalisms as being the kind of local um, uh, local variations. So again, I think shifting the frame, shifting the kind of level of analysis, um, makes it possible to see uh, to see local variation in a different way, and to get um, uh, to sort of actually create in some ways more. put more attention on the distinctiveness of individual oceans and the ways in which their um, the particular configurations of land-based polities and uh, regimes interact with this kind of global regime um, of maritime labor and trade um, and, uh, and life.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think that here it might be useful to turn more, more directly to the first uh, substantive uh, section of the book, Currents, Uh, These contributions primarily focus on institutional connections across land and sea. So, Carla Rom Phillips examines maritime recruitment in the Spanish Empire. Adam Kulo and Xing Heng's piece focuses on early modern Cambodian Ayutthaya's negotiations with Dutch and Chinese actors. And Matthew Taylor-Rafferty provides a synoptic view of European maritime law and uneven treaty regimes. So, broadly speaking, what is the portrait of early modern institutional change that emerges from these contributions? And how did this institutional change organize maritime actions in the early modern period?
0: Well, I'll I'll hop in here. I think one of the things that is visible in this first section is that um, the formation of a regulatory order for the seas uh, is polycentric. And each of these chapters takes a this is illustrated in the section because each chapter takes a different approach to the way um, either institutions or uh, institutional practices are being generated. I already talked; we already talked about Carl uh, uh, Ron Phillips's uh, piece, which takes an imperial frame and uh, 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 traces these processes across the land-sea divide. Uh, the Clulo and and Hang piece uh, chapter is. Um, probes this uh, way in which um, polities t- trying to organize internal markets and, and trade uh, and production uh, are influenced in those efforts through their um, maritime connections outside. And so it, it, it really raises this kind of problematic of the inside-outside uh, problem um, and and the way regulatory uh, efforts on the seas are closely connected to uh, what's going on I- inside polities. It's a it's a it's a lovely chapter. And then Rafferty, one might the chapter one might think of as returning to a more traditional approach of thinking about European influences uh, writ large. But we wanted we wanted to group them together to to show the wide variety of of levels at which and angles from which uh, institutional influences emerge.
1: Yeah. Um, Nathan? I think Laurie said it best. (laughs) Well, all right.
2: So I guess taken together, these chapters also aim to recover a sort of polycentric history of early modern global transformation, I think. Um, And it gives a sense of how all these different diverse maritime practices and regulatory authority, came to converge in this early modern moment. I was wondering if you could elaborate a bit more on the import of this historiographical move, where it's marking a, de- a departure from an earlier way of thinking about diffusionism as the primary mode of institutional change, where you have diffusionism from the metropole to the colony outwards. What What is the picture that emerges... Um, by looking at this sort of interplay between between different institutional connections across land and sea, and how this, uh, what is the import of this intervention?
1: So I can I can take a quick stab at that. Um, I think I think one one thing that comes through quite clearly in these um, in these three contributions is, and I don't think this is, you know, an, an entirely original uh contribution, but I think it's um, uh, it's nonetheless. Uh, well in line with um, with current thinking uh, is that uh, the imperial, these imperial processes, processes of uh, institution formation um, are very much um, bottom up as well as top down. I mean, it's not just that they're not diffusing out from, uh, from the European center. It's that they're also being developed um, from the ground, from the ground up. Um, And I think you can see that um, in, in Rafferty's uh, work and the kind of, uh, organization of maritime law from um, from the water up, I suppose it is in this case, uh, right? Thinking about how um, mariners and, and other actors on the sea are, are sort of reshaping maritime law on the fly, more or less. Um, and you can see it in the ways in which um, on-the-ground actors in uh, Kulo and uh, uh, and Heng's paper um, are also uh, looking at the ways in which uh, uh, imperial structure and um Sort of trade wars are being are being driven by by actors on the ground. Um, So that I think is very much in line with um, with with current thinking. Um, And I think it's also the case that um, all of these papers make the case for the kind of central role of the the maritime uh, border in the development of imperial um, processes. Um, I think we know we have some idea um, in various historiographies of the important role that um, that maritime life um, and the need to state's desire to to extend their power onto the sea um, plays in, in developing uh, imperial structure. Um, but I think these, these papers really put a focus on that um, and help us, I hope, uh, in this early modern period, focus a little bit more on the way in which the maritime world is actually at the center of what imperial polities are looking at. Um, you know, we're not accustomed today um, to thinking about the maritime world as being a kind of central project of the state. Right, the state we, as we see it, doesn't operate primarily on the water or on the water's edge. Um, and it's there's, but there's no question that in the early modern period, the, the the maritime dimension of of state building is much greater. And I think that's really gotten a short shrift. Uh, there are exceptions to that, but but overall. Uh, that's really gotten short shrift, and so I think these these essays are trying to to make the case um, in their in their way. And it's not just these essays; it's the broader project of these of these scholars uh, to think about the state as a as a maritime project in a sense in the long early modern.
0: Mm-hmm,
2: mm-hmm. And turning to the second section, then Dis- dispatches, uh, these chapters turn to distinctly maritime forms of knowledge. So we have Margaret Schulte's, um study of navigational science among mariners. David Igler's account of visual and ethnographic knowledge in the Pacific. And of course, Nathan, your reading of the private letter in The Wartime Atlantic. How did the birth of these new political forms and bureaucratic structures that we've just discussed inform the emergence of new scientific disciplines, forms of knowledge, or epistemologies? Is this relationship one that's purely causal, or were they mutually implicated? And I was wondering also if you could talk a bit about the relationship between this tendency to its systematization and abstraction in these new disciplines and forms of vernacular knowledge across a range of actors, tongues, and locales.
0: Well, I do think that these chapters particularly clearly illustrate this dynamic uh, that you were just referring to, and that is the relation between uh, vernacular uh, knowledge and um and the organization of knowledge, one might say, from um, from positions of power that just comes out so clearly in all of these. And uh, I, I, I know that uh, Nathan will be too modest to mention his uh, his chapter, but I would just like to say it's a beautiful chapter about uh, the uh, these uh, uh, ships being intercepted and um uh, people using the correspondence, the private correspondence that's on them for, uh, uh, for clues to, uh, and as evidence uh, to establish claims to nationality of the ships and the ship cargo. And uh, it, it's a, it's a, it's a wonderful illustration of a kind of unexpected um, and little known um, until Nathan wrote about it. But, uh, Process of using uh, something that doesn't appear to be part of an official uh, body of documents um, in, in the adjudication of of, of of what happens to property and the definition of nationality, um, and that that but that interplay that dynamic between uh, vernacular and what you've described as uh, abstract, but also um, um, sort of uh, processes that are. Are are centered in 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 the metropole is very clear in the in the other in the other chapters too, and um, I, I think that um, there there are some there are some really unexpected and very interesting uh, ways in all three of these uh, pieces of. Um, illustrating the generation of knowledge in, in unusual forms, uh, in ways. In the Igler piece, we have uh, a, a, um, uh, him highlighting also the generation of knowledge uh, by indigenous people aboard ships. Um, and, uh, and so these, these chapters, I think, are very generative of future research. At least I hope so.
1: Can I also just add just one? Um, thank you, Laurie, for that very kind description of my my essay, um, which, incidentally, um, uh, yes, uh, was uh, uh, part of sort of the a sort of outtake from my from my first book. Um, sort of something that I couldn't didn't fit, didn't fit there, but but really I was very excited about and had been sort of holding on to. Um, you know, I think one of the other things that comes through in these, in these chapters, it's perhaps actually least the case in mine um, is the degree to which knowledge on the water is a life or death kind of activity. Um, you know, Margaret Scotty, whose essay is largely about um, the navigational training of um, uh, Northern European mariners, you know, shows very convincingly that if you have incompetent pilots, you know, pilots who aren't properly trained, people die, um, ships are lost. Um, and similarly, um, you know, Igler um, really uh, reminds us of the degree to which um, indigenous knowledge of seafarers is crucial to early exploration, uh, early European exploration in the Pacific and in the Atlantic world. Um, and, uh, you know, it also becomes crucial in indigenous resistance to, um, to European incursions. Um, so again, I think, uh, you know, the, the kind of the stakes here are also similar. Uh, the stakes in, in, in my essay are mostly about whether a ship will be captured or not and sold um, as, as valid prize. But, you know, if you're the owner of one of those ships, that's a pretty big set of stakes for you, um, even if life, lives aren't at stake. Um, so again, I think it's another one of these distinctive qualities um, of the maritime world that, that it's not just we want to know, um, you know, it's not just the extension of the state's knowledge. It's also um, knowledge that actually uh, it pretty directly um, affects the survival of um, of the people involved. Mm-hmm.
2: And I think that this section also um, substantially contributes to how we think about imperial history, because, you know, following the post-colonial and imperial turns, I'm sure that most historians um, would be familiar with the sort of enumerative modalities of colonialism with focus on models like the census, cartography, demographic statistics, etc. and places like British India or French Algeria. These forms are usually associated with the rational legal authority of high imperial bureaucracy. But I think that in turning to the early modern period and in adopting a maritime perspective, you are providing a view of knowledge production that challenges or refines this view of high empire and its sort of knowledge project of knowledge production. I was wondering if you could talk a bit more about this sort of um, intervention that you're making, perhaps in imperial history, and what challenges the uh, did this early modern imperial projects encounter in their attempt to reify and systematize these new forms of knowledge.
1: Sure, I, I'm sure Lori will have things to say. If I but if I can just jump in quickly, um, you know, I think one one of the one of the the surprising things to me about um putting together this section was the degree to which, um. Information looked the opposite of what I would have expected from some of that um, that imperial, uh, sort of new imperial, new colonial historiography. Um, It looked to me not like a a paucity of information, but like a surfeit of information. In fact, a kind of fire hose of information flowing in from um, from the peripheries or from below. However, you want to think about it, depending on the positionality that you're that you're imagining. I think we tend to think of these imperial governments, um, as sort of grasping for information, right. They're trying to get their hands on demographic data, on cartographic data, um, on information. You know, you think about, uh, colonial police who, um, you know, are, seem to be perpetually, and this is, you know, a sort of 19th century, uh, 20th century perspective, but I think, uh, work on the 18th century is similar, you know, sort of Always trying to figure out what's going on and kind of always failing, um, and it, it looks kind of different in these essays. It looks like in the maritime world, at least, there's a kind of um, excess of information um, being produced, and the problem, in a sense, is how to filter it um, from the imperial perspective. How to filter it? How to get the right pieces of information um, in hand and not get sort of overwhelmed by a flood um, of other of other of other data. Um, So that's one thing. And the other, I think, is very simply, I think a maritime turn in thinking about the information economies of empire is crucial because, again, these empires are, these empires, early modern empires are maritime empires. That's where they exercise the greatest degree of control by and large. Um, That's um, where most of the resources are being put. Um, and it's not just the British empire, right? The French empire as well is primarily um, in the 18th century, a maritime empire. It's the the ministry of the Marine. um, That's the big ministry uh, that has, uh, you know, control over the colonies. Um, And in a sense, a lot of the imperial, the work on imperialism, very, very little of that has thought about um, the the particular problems of the maritime world. I actually wrote about this um, in an essay about, in the the itinerario a couple years ago, Uh, trying to think about uh, the ways in which the maritime world poses particular problems for imperial administrators, lack of information in some cases, lots of information, but it's all sort of hidden or fragmented in ways that make it very hard to use, Um, and uh, changes in uh, the kinds of legal regimes and um, information regimes as ships move around that make it extremely difficult to, uh, but in distinctive ways, distinctively maritime um, ways to kind of follow what's going on so so my hope is that um is that this work will will help um, sort of refocus some of that amazing um interest in imperial uh and and colonial um, uh, knowledge production and its relationship to power and imperial power to try to refocus some of it on the imp- on the maritime space because i think there's a lot to be done there um, that would change how we think about uh, how we think about colonial regimes but um i should let Laurie uh, weigh in
0: Oh, I, I agree with all that. I don't have that much to add. I mean, I, obviously, I've been thinking for, for some time, it was kind of one of the themes within uh, my book, A Search for Sovereignty, to try to think about the ways that ideas about geography were being generated, uh, not just in Europe, but through practices and conflicts and interactions in empire. Um, and I, I one thing I wanted to mention that I also see as rather original uh, about these chapters, in addition to contributing to that um, that uh, perspective, is that in different ways each of them um, points out that this is that that the maritime world is a site of epistemological uh, change and also the invention of, invention might be too strong a word, but certainly positioning of particular genres. So there's a kind of multiplicity of, there's a focus on genre and text here that's really very interesting across these chapters. Uh, we begin to look at letters in a different way through Nathan's chapter, uh, through reports about uh, um, uh, about scientific knowledge or what Reports about what appears to be non-scientific, but turns out to be scientific knowledge, in uh, in in uh, Margaret's chapter. Uh, and then David Igler has an emphasis on sketches that are done uh, from the from the ship, which is really very uh, interesting. So that's why we call the th- the the section dispatches too. Or at least I like that term. Uh, Nathan might not want to take. Uh, I think liked it less well, but I, but we ended up there because of of this. Um, you know, it indicates this the the maritime spaces as a really uh, important place for kind of you know. To packaging um, a knowledge not just creating new knowledge but also packaging it in new ways and and uh, you know highlighting or even creating new genres
2: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, So I think that this this is a good point to introduce the third segment of the book which is titled Thresholds, because the formation the, the formation of these new new forms of knowledge is also connected to the transformation of social legal practices. And in this section, I think it really foregrounds the important role of threshold spaces such as coastlines, shores, bays, and estuaries, which were both barriers and transitional zones. Here, Catherine Phipps examines Japanese debates around coastal control and maritime sovereignty. Yipi analyzes Marinage as a political problem in the trans borderlands in the Caribbean. And Lisa Norling provides an account of gender dynamics in early modern fisheries. Across these accounts, what is the relationship between the spatial specificities of a certain site. So thinking about the geographical or perhaps spatial features of like a coastline or a bay or um, another sort of threshold space and the complex socio-legal and administrative arrangements that emerged. Um, And how do we think of this in relation to perhaps the environmental turns? Um, How might this draw on, for example, the body of literature on legal pluralism that, has been elaborated, of course, by you, um, Lauren. Um, I think that this was a very rich segment as well, and there are so many directions in which we could bring this conversation.
1: Well, let me let me just let, let me um, just take on the sort of first part of your question. I, I think, especially for the uh, legal pluralism, and, uh, Laurie is probably the expert um, on that, so she certainly will want to speak to that. Um, I would imagine. Uh, you know, I think one of the things that's most remarkable about this about this section, or I found most remarkable about it, is the degree to which, even though the topics are really quite different, right? Catherine Finn, this was, this was really our strategy in this book. You know, we weren't aiming for comprehensive coverage of the globe. You can't do that in an edited volume um, that isn't, you know, a bazillion pages long. And even if you have a million pages, you're still not probably going to be comprehensive. So part of what we were aiming for was a kind of mosaic that would show you um, to show the reader the the, the sort of the that the, the claims or the arguments that we're trying to make or advance um, actually do hold, and and one of the things that I think you can see here is that as you just described it, right, Catherine Phipps is talking about maritime um, sovereignty, coastal control in the mid nineteenth century. Yappa Mulik is talking about uh, maritime marinage, that is um, a sort of long term uh, escapes by enslaved people in the Caribbean from small island to small island. And then you have Lisa Norling's essay, which was about um, really women on the water's edge. What all of these show so persuasively, I think in distinct ways, is that the water's edge is this crucial, crucial space. It's um, a place where um, everything seems to change, right? Legal regimes um, alter, um, labor regimes alter, zones of uh, of political control um, come to an end. And I think we sort of vaguely know that, but I think what, what comes out, of, if you read these three essays together, I certainly come away from it saying, wow, that, that land-sea divide is really powerful and we need to think really carefully about what that looks like um, in different places. And I would say that in my, my, in my reading of this, the particular qualities of coastline are less important. In other words, whether it's uh, you know, a, a, a deep bay or you know, a marsh zone, that seems less important in these essays than the presence of the land-sea barrier. Um, the exact qualities that are less important than the presence of the land-sea barrier, which seems to be of overriding importance in all of these, uh, in all of these different places. Um, and so, again, it, it creates uh, a kind of global uh, maritime structure um, that you have very different political and um, labor orders interacting with But everywhere, there's something that happens at that threshold, um, to use the the title of the section. Um, So it changes the kinds of labor that women are doing from one side of it to the other side of it, more or less. Um, It's the boundary between slavery and freedom. And where exactly that boundary is, is obviously very important. And, you know, it's a contested boundary of sovereignty. Um, So in all of those senses, I think it really accentuates the degree to which this is a global phenomenon um, that can be studied in global fashion. But it tells you something really important and interesting about each of these local scenes. And so I, in a way, I, I, I do think it, it really shows you something quite, um, quite interesting, which, of course, I should just say comes out of, I, I would say, all of the essays in this section are, especially uh, uh, Catherine Phipps and Jepa Mulek are really uh, reacting to and thinking with um, A Search for Sovereignty and, and, and the work that Laurie did in that book to, to show us precisely how important geography was um, to understandings of sovereignty and to the um, to the sort of uh, fragmentation, uh, the sort of fragmented uh, extent and, and, and presence of sovereignty around the globe.
0: I'll just jump in quickly. Uh, thanks, Nathan. That was so clear. Uh, to say that the 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 choice of the term threshold was very um, very much uh, a, a purposeful um, double entendre because we're talking about these threshold or liminal zones. But also inspired by analyses uh, like that of uh, Annabel Brett in the history of political thought that have talked about the importance of the threshold of the state or the threshold of political communities and the divide between uh, between um, uh, political communities and the and nat- the natural world and uh, that that kind of meaning of threshold gets picked up. Here, in particular, because uh, at least two two of these uh, these three contributions really are emphasizing the way these conflicts at the water's edge are very important for uh, definitions of political community and how they are interacting. So these are, and here's I would not emphasize legal pluralism so much as. Uh, the the kind of larger category of interpolity relations or interpolity um, zones, uh, because uh, Mulek and also um, uh, Phipps are are talking about these pluripolitical uh, zones, and what they are each showing us is that the conflicts um, across. Uh, empires in in these zones is really very central to then the kind of redefinition of of political and legal control inside individual empires. So uh, Phipps shows very clearly that the conflicts over over the the water's edge in in, in Japan are central to um, uh, formations of ideas about Japanese sovereignty in relation to um, to imperial sovereignties. And and in in response to your very good prompt about thinking about the relation between specific and uh, the specificities of cases and then the more general patterns, um, you know, Mulick is is um, analyzing this case where is a very unusual case because these islands are so tightly grouped that maritime marinage is much more possible than it is even in many other parts of the Caribbean. And so it is a very specific uh, kind of place in that regard. But what he does with it is to show us that this is actually an illustration of a much broader pattern that will exist in other kinds of geographies of inter-imperial collaboration, Um, and that is an example of a kind of land-sea regime uh, that one could see in modular fashion as uh, being recreated in other parts of the world.
2: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think that that brings us very nicely to the last uh, afterward, uh, which is about land-sea regimes in world history, Um, especially what, Lauren, you just said about Thinking more rigorously about land's regimes and what Nathan, I, I thought, um, really eloquently put as the, as the specificities of this interface between land and sea in certain sites. Um, I think that this challenges the sort of legal and philosophical tradition of thinking about the division between land and sea as absolute, unchanging, and static. So for example, Hugo Grotius's claim that the high seas were the free seas, untethered to terrestrial boundaries and therefore beyond national and imperial claims to sovereignty, or like Carl Schmitt's idea of firm land as a historicized space and the free sea as atemporal and ahistorical, or even someone like, someone like Michel Foucault, whose notion of the boat as the heterotopic space par excellence between land and sea is um, precisely because land and sea are supposedly incommensurate in absolutes. So how have these conceptual frames um, been influential in the conventional account of the land-sea divide? And how how do you think these contributions um, challenge these frames um, and reveal precisely their inadequacy in accounting for the polarity of processes and formations in the early modern world? In other words, how does a view of land-sea connections open up avenues to examine uh, Lauren, like you said, purely, plurip- uh, plurip- a political and multi-jurisdictional spaces, processes, and practices.
0: Well, I, you know, I think, uh, I think this goes sort of to the heart about w- of, of what one, w- what we as editors might hope for for this book, because. Uh, as, as co-editors, when you, when you do a project like this with these very talented um, scholars who have written uh, individual chapters and who may or may not agree with everything that Nathan and I have to say in the introduction and the afterwards, <laughs> what, well, the thing that one hopes the most is that, uh, is that it generates new research questions and new research directions and that it inspires people to ask uh, similar questions and really push the boundaries of the field. Uh, and, and, and so when we pose this idea about the land sea divide, um, I'm sorry, land sea regimes in the afterward, uh, it's really as a, a way of, of generating new questions um, about uh, uh, ordering the oceans, about uh, social change on the oceans and their relation to, uh, to world history. And um, you know, I I like to think with this concept. I found it. I have found it useful, and I, I really should mention that. Uh, in um, uh, it's it, it's although we don't use the term uh, land sea regimes, but this way of thinking about uh, about this connection was um, central. I think or, or I, uh, began to be central for me in my work with Lisa Ford in in Rage for Order, where we uh, write about. Uh, the very patchy regulatory regimes, uh, prohibition regimes against slave trading and um, and piracy, um, and and also write about the emergence in the long nineteenth century of these pluripolitical regions as imperial projects and interimperial projects. Um, and so, um, you know, I'm just very interested in coming up with ways that where we can ask. You know, new questions, uh, and 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 find out uh, and, and arrive at new findings about the the ordering of the oceans and their relation to global history. So that's why I'm enthusiastic about the perspective, and uh, more because it's I don't regard it as a finished in any way um, uh, finished idea, but one that I hope will be generative.
1: I mean, mm-hmm. I can just I can just add to that. I, you know, I I think um, I think it's. Quite clear from the contributions in the volume. I mean, I, I share Lori's uh, enthusiasm for the idea of land sea regimes, and um, and think it's uh, hopefully a, a generative idea. Um, I think it's abundantly clear from the essays in the volume that the idea of land and sea as somehow opposites, philosophical um, opposites, is uh, just just doesn't bear scrutiny. Um, it, it, you can't um, persuasively um, hold that idea. I don't think, um, because there are so many connections between between land and sea, and and there, um, and so many more than connections. It's that the there, are, as as land sea regime suggests, there are structures that literally that span land and sea, um, where there, it's not just that they're connected to each other; it's that the the regime literally knits them together and exists on both sides of them. Um, uh, and, you know, I think actually maritime law is a beautiful illustration of that um, sort of European maritime law of the, of the 18th uh, or even the 19th century um, is, is a legal regime which functions both on land and at sea, which is concerned fundamentally with um, with things that happen on ships and and on the sea. But it, it has all sorts of. Um, dimensions that take place both on land and on sea and which actually depend on the movement of things back and forth from land and sea so um even even something like that to think of it as as maritime or as terrestrial i think is is faulty right it, it has this quality of of straddling and, and tying together um the two and so i think thinking outward from that kind of um that kind of example thinking outward from these thresholds um between land and sea can can really help us um again, identify similar kinds of patterns, similar kinds of processes taking place um, in many parts um, of the world. Um, And, you know, uh, one could see, I think there are similar processes that one sees taking place um, uh, in the Indian Ocean, uh, as well as in the Pacific. So, um, uh, again, I think by giving us a set of sort of structures that, have some commonality in different places, I think that allows us to do that kind of pluripolitical, multi-jurisdictional um, work. Not that there aren't other ways to do it, but I think it's another possibility for for doing that kind of work. I um, mean, thinking about the relationship between empires, um, thinking about the ways in which they confront each other, um, interact with one another in this, in this, you know, sort of broad period, broad early modern period, where you have um, empires from uh, from Europe, from the Americas, from South and Southeast Asia and East Asia, all meeting with one another. Um, and, and a lot of that meeting is taking place precisely on these on these land sea um, borders and implicates um, land sea regimes. And so I think potentially it's a very it's a very fruitful way of, of trying to think about these uh, inter-imperial um, dynamics in, in the period.
2: Mm-hmm. So before we move to our last traditional question, um, can you please read a paragraph of the book for our listeners?
0: Nathan?
1: Sure. Um, Laurie, the last one of the introduction. Sounds good. All right. Um, so this is the last paragraph of the introduction. Studying the oceans and seas as sites of experimentation, innovation, governance, and disruption promises to produce a truly global history of maritime change. Transformations on the seas did not take place only in a few familiar ways, such as through long-distance trade, cross-cultural relations, migration, and war. Seafaring itself generated global processes and patterns that stitched together regions, spanned the land-sea divide, and profoundly influenced terrestrial polities and societies. These processes make the early modern world, in ways both tangible and metaphorical, a world at sea.
2: Beautiful. So, well, Lauren and Nathan, I've taken up a lot of your time. Could you just tell us, by way of closing, what you're working on now and a bit about your current and future projects?
0: Uh, I I am working now on a, a book that's about legalities of small wars in European empires. Uh, and uh, it's... Um, just focusing on these conflicts, um, small conflicts um, like raiding and uh, uh, encounters and uh, wars that are sometimes undeclared and informally pursued or pursued in decentralized ways and, and how, their, uh, how participants began to generate ways of thinking about uh, law in relation to those conflicts and how those conflicts also influenced uh, the development of, of global law or international law.
1: And uh, I'm working, uh, the main project I'm working on right now is the um, a cultural history of the Atlantic Age of Revolutions. And the idea is to, the book goes from the Stamp Act crisis from 1765, uh, roughly thereabouts, to the independence of Peru, 1825, um, and so it's um, we, we haven't had very many books, or in fact any books um, that really try to look at the history of the the Atlantic Age of Revolutions across that that sixty um, that sixty year period. Although they're often talked about together, um, and the, the the claim of the book, or the sort of argument of the book is that it's possible to think across all of these very ideologically, politically diverse revolutionary movements. I mean. You know, from the, the slaveholders revolt of, let's say, a place like Virginia or South Carolina to the um, revolt of the enslaved in Haiti to, um, uh, to the uh, often uh, you know, indigenous and Creole uh, revolts of, of Latin America, that it's possible to think about all of these together if one thinks about um, them as coming out of a set of shared uh, or, or coming, taking place within a set of shared cultural practices. And so I think about um, cultural practices of the 18th century um, that are widely shared around the Atlantic world that are connected to the cultural um, and uh, uh, economic uh, and socioeconomic conditions of the Atlantic world in the mid18th century and think about the ways in which those provide a frame for this first sort of wave of revolutions. And then the ways in which the, that revolutionary wave of the first, let's say 25 years, creates a new framework, a new matrix, um, both cultural and socioeconomic for the second wave um, of revolutions, uh, starting let's say around 1800. Um, and so that's the that's the project I'm working on. And um, if the, very exciting. And the water don't rise, maybe it'll be done by the end of this year, or at least in, in draft.
2: <laughs> Fingers crossed for you, but that's really exciting. and I'll definitely be looking out for both your upcoming projects. But thank you so much for joining us today on uh, this episode of New Books in the Indian Ocean World. And thank you, listener, for listening to today's episode in which we explore A World at Sea, Maritime Practices and Global History, co-edited by Lauren Benton and Nathan Paul Rosenthal, published by University of Pennsylvania Press in 2020. It is available on Amazon and other outlets. This is your host, Calvin Ng. Stay tuned for the next episode of New Books in the Indian Ocean World.